traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Opportunities for people to speak their minds have never been greater, but social media have also placed a megaphone in the hands of anyone with an internet connection and an axe to grind. Despite decades of debate over what can and can't be said online, platforms have been timid about flexing their moderating muscles. Events in the past few months have put them emphatically to the test. After the January 6th riots on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., Facebook, Twitter and YouTube pulled the then-President Donald Trump off their sites with the justification that he had incited violence. But Mr. Trump has fought back. At the start of July, he sued the three tech giants, claiming they were violating his First Amendment rights. The battle lines in the war over censorship have been drawn, and not only in the US. After racist criticism of black footballers on the England team appeared in the wake of the European Championship football final recently, fierce disputes broke out over how far the major tech platforms can or should censor those who post irate or outright offensive messages. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, moderation or censorship? What's the difference on tech platforms? My guest is the American lawyer and writer Eric Berkowitz. He's put his legal mind to dissecting two millennia of censorship in the West for his new book, Dangerous Ideas. And he spent 20 years defending self-expression, including fighting for female and LGBT asylum seekers, fleeing authoritarian regimes from Central America and Iran. He claims he's never lost a case. Let's see how he fares with us today. Eric Berkowitz, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you for having me. Now, your subject, Eric, is censorship, and it's about one of the thorniest issues around at the moment. You admit in your book, Dangerous Ideas, that to write about a subject as opaque as censorship in history feels like chasing a vacuum. Interesting phrase. (laughs) Why chase a vacuum? Well, because what we're talking about are things that aren't there. We were talking about censorship, which is in itself an act of negation. And so sometimes using a book to chase moves against something means that we're looking for clues for items or ideas that aren't there. Although the truth is, is one of the other things we say is that censorship often is rather futile. We're going to test whether you're right about that as we go along. But let's get a bit of history under our belt first, because we like to take a long view on this show. Tell us where you first find evidence of censorship. How long has it been around? It seems as though censorship, the urge to censor others is about as old as the urge to speak itself. There's a, a quote by a recent editor of the Los Angeles Times, Phil Kirby, who said that censorship is the strongest drive in human nature. Sex is a weak second. And, and I, I tend to agree with that, that we have this innate need from the beginning to not only to try and express ourselves, but also to try and halt expressions that 
jar us, that challenge us, that 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 call into question beliefs that we have. And so censorship, I think, has always been there through rules on religious incantations, etc. It's certainly been there from the beginning, from the position of authority. Some of the first examples that I find are from the third century BC, perhaps the most colorful one is the first Chinese emperor, Xin Shi Huang, and he was an interesting character. Uh, of course, he used warfare to unify the Seven Kingdoms, but he, he tried to sort of erase history and have history start with him. It, it, it literally infuriated him to hear Confucian scholars and others compare his regime to the past. And they were invoking philosophy and history to do it. So what did he do? He had all books of literature, poetry, and philosophy, etc., confiscated, kept copies for himself, key, and burned the rest. And just for good measure, he buried 400 Confucian scholars alive and made it a death crime that you and your family were going to get killed in one way or another if you even used the past to criticize him. That's one of the opening anecdotes of the book, and I think it sort of encapsulates quite a bit of the irrational fears of authority, since what a Confucian scholar had absolutely no risk to his power at all, the desire to mold history and the desire to save one from criticism. It didn't do him very much good. He died three years later drinking an elixir of immortality and the empire fell apart. But it didn't stop him from trying. Beware the elixir of immortality. I'm always telling the kids to don't do that. Why do you think that humans censor in the first place? And as you've taken this long lens, is the reason that a Chinese emperor in the third century BC censors remotely comparable to the kind of censorship arguments we might be having today? I think it is. With all of the obvious differences of life, you know, several millennia ago and today, I mean, I was just reading yesterday about a slew of new bills in the United States. There's some similar legislation in, in the UK, barring the teaching of history. I mean, in America, we have maybe 25 odd bills, many of which have come to law, barring the teaching of history in universities and schools, which bring up the role of race, which bring up the role of slavery, which, which implicate race as a fundamental factor in American history. That, that is purely astounding. But that's not censorship. You see, I think we're already going to have a little bit of a stand up because... Oh, I think it is. Okay, well, let, let me say what I think and, and, and tell me if you think this is wrong. That when you say this should have an amount of space, whatever the issue, right? Race is a particularly reactive one at the moment, but it could be other aspects of human existence. You've also written a lot about uh, sexuality and the way that's treated in societies. You might say this has... X amount of space on a curriculum. And someone will say, I think it should have more. Someone will say, I think it should have less. I think it's out of balance with other, other aspects. Now, to me, that is an argument about values. It is an argument you can say, well, you've come to the wrong view and you, you ought to sort of get with the program. But it's not, to me, the same as censorship. Why am I wrong? Well, taking the American view, it is mainstream, full-stop censorship when a position of authority, a government instructs another on the viewpoints that can or cannot be expressed. And in this case, at least with, you know, we have this huge divide here on public and private, but when we're, when we're talking about 
a publicly funded institution when the government or the source of the funds is saying, this is off, off limits, this you cannot teach, this will create division, etc. That is and straight up full stop censorship. But if it was, say, the faculty or if it was the organization or the institution itself, I mean, at some point, someone has to decide that there's more or less of something on offer in a publishing list in a university. Someone's going to make that someone, a group of people are going to make that call. So I suppose in that sense, almost anything is censorship. Yes. If I'm putting together a course and there is only so many books that I could teach, and, and I decide to teach X book rather than Y book, that's called academic freedom. That's called making a decision. That's called a value judgment. But when I'm hearing that if you, if you teach the following, you're going to lose your job, if the school teaches the following, it's going to lose its funding, that makes a, a, a very big distinction. And I, and I guess to answer your question, what the heck is censorship in the first place? That's a question that is elusive, and the word censorship is one of these things that's been sort of bleached. It's like woke or constitutional here in the United States. It sort of means what people say it means. Censorship is the exercise of compulsion, the exercise of force by one group on another as to what that other can say. Now, that use of force could be damnation. That use of force could be ostracism. That use of force could, could be drawing and quartering and putting your head on a spike. So it's been traditionally a two-dimensional dynamic, those with guns, those with compulsion, and generally the targets have been outliers, dissidents, heretics, nosy reporters, etc. But now I think in the recent decades, it's expanded into a three or four-dimensional matrix because we have these sort of transnational companies, the social media companies, which is really where the action is. But one thing I did want to ask you to set the framework of that is how much you think history can tell us about current debates on free speech at all. As you say, social media and the internet, as you nicely put it, are where the action is today. They are thoroughly modern phenomena. So which examples that we might find ourselves involved in disagreeing with colleagues about come closest to free speech battles that you would say, I can see antecedents or these are eternal? I think to reach back, Probably the best antecedent, and of course, by drawing antecedents, you know, you draw as many differences as you do similarities, is the invention of the printing press itself. Because prior to the invention of the printing press, speech was almost by its own nature, at least as expressed, kept limited because of the existence of manuscripts and the, the expense of creating them and the, the limited nature of them. Once the press came into high fruition in the 16th century, debates began to be metastasized. People could respond. You could, you could start to use speech in a way to address the common man much, much more effectively than before. And it's no surprise that within decades of the printing press really coming into its own, we had profusions of laws restricting speech as printed, most famously the Catholic Index. There was this marvelous diffusion of knowledge, this marvelous diffusion of discussion, and its expert use by the likes of Martin Luther, who was the, like pretty well the first media star. Why do I say that? Because he was the first person to really grasp the power of it and how when you use pamphlets rather than long books and you put your arguments in common language, it's going to respond and it's going to cause effects. And indeed it did. Now, 
we're in a situation where I or you can theoretically make a statement and have it heard and amplified you know, around the world. One thing that has no, no antecedent is that a 22-year-old Calo engineer in Palo Alto, who's a coder and perhaps somewhere on the spectrum, is making speech decisions worldwide. That has never happened. That has never happened that we could have transnational censorship happening, effectively an informal basis, which is pretty well molding the conversation. Well, so this this brings me perhaps to the, to the crux of your argument. I think that the very strong thrust of your view is that censorship doesn't work. And yet at the same time, you're very worried about the 20-something callow or otherwise uh, engineer making these decisions. I live among them in San Francisco, yeah. <laughs> So you you know of which you speak, uh, sitting in San Francisco talking to me, but if it doesn't work, why are you so worried about it? It does work when people's lives are interrupted. It does work when people are jailed. It does work when the anti-terrorism police show up in Twitter's offices, as they did a week or two ago in India, and start to take hostages. It doesn't work in the sense that more often than not, the ideas expressed persist. And more often than not, despite the roadkill, if you will, along the way, whatever is trying to be expressed generally does find its way out. So let's look at one of the biggest stories about big tech and free speech recently, and that is the former president, Donald Trump, being banned from several social media sites following those uh, riots at the Capitol in January. What is your assessment of this legal and philosophical? Uh, Were these sites within their rights to boot him off the platform? And were they right to do so? I'm glad you asked this because I was thinking about this this morning. This, I think, gets into some of my key points is that it's, you know, I'm still a living sentient person and my, my, my ill will toward Trump uh, is pretty easy to reveal. So part of my own personal life was waking up in California and thinking, what fresh hell did he say today? And I read his tweets and my blood pressure goes up and then there's only till the next one. So on a personal level, Eric Berkowitz was nothing but thrilled to see this, this menace taken, taken off social media. As a person who's writing a book about the subject in which I try to value tolerance, and tolerance meaning tolerance only has value when it's for a viewpoint you loathe, I think, well, that's kind of a bad call on Twitter's point. And also, I think it's a poor call because I think Trump's statements... Uh, revealed to a large extent the, the 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 incapacity that he had to hold office, and I think it could have had a huge effect on making him lose. So on a strategic level, I don't think it was a particularly good decision. On a legal level, uh, it was utterly within Twitter's rights and Facebook's rights to take take them off. We had this very, very high divide here, which you don't have. The government is virtually powerless to stop speech in the United States, whereas private concerns can operate Little East Germany's anywhere they want, either in their coffee shops or on their platforms. I suppose on the Trump case, the argument would be, and I've often found this very difficult in arguments with colleagues about it, about free speech uh, long before Donald Trump came along, is where you have statements which are not themselves 
incitement, or at least you can make a defence that they're not incitement, but in effect, as it was with that uh, call to people to march on the capital, are acting as incitement, likely to, or with a danger of leading to violence. Another great example, if we want to just take it off Donald Trump, it would be something like when you had those in the UK and elsewhere, extremist, fundamentalist, uh, Islamist organisations saying, if you see the enemy, you know what to do. Now, that doesn't say you're all right to go stab someone or attack them or blow them up. But the meaning is pretty clear to those who are in a particular mindset to receive it. Isn't that a really difficult area for you to say, well, fine, just let let them continue on the platforms? That seems to me a bit morally dubious. I agree with you entirely. Uh, I'm not going to argue with you about that at all. We have the outer limits, at least in the United States, and I ascribe to it, which is that speech, even the worst speech, can and should be tolerated for the greater good. That is until there is an imminent risk of, of serious harm. Now, you know, Trump is nothing if not good at testing those limits. He was throughout his presidency. He took the breadth of speech, which is by itself limited by social norms and itself should be limited by good judgment. He discarded the good judgment and kept the broad speech. But I would argue that at least on January 6th, what he said that day rose to the level of incitement, immediate incitement, because there was a crowd there ready to storm the Capitol. Now, what you said about these uh, tweets, if you see someone, you know what to do, that's a little shy of that kind of incitement. Uh, I think it's a much harder thing to define. And when you say it falls shy for you to say, if you see the unbeliever, you know what to do. If you talk to someone like Ayn Hirsi Ali, who's steeped in, you don't have to always agree with everything that that, that she says. But she says that the way that is received among certain radicalised groups is very different to me saying to you, if you see someone on the street, give them a piece of your mind. It's received as incitement. And how do we tell the difference? Tricky, huh? Facebook has created its oversight board. It's an external mechanism. It oversees content moderation practices, has 20 members, including former politicians, editors, academics, sort of international great and and good. Uh, Critics say it's toothless, etc. But is there a possible model here of independent non-statutory boards? Or do you find it irritating to to have any sense that people moderating are a kind of hand-picked group of people? Or is it maybe a model for the future? It's a very, very difficult question. Uh, Irritating is perhaps not the right word. I find it disappointing. I start on the premise that when you give one body control over the content of speech, that control will inevitably be misused. It will, power exists to first and foremost to perpetuate itself. And so when you have a free speech champion, like you're talking about doing in in the UK, or you have some sort of board saying this should or shouldn't be, inevitably that's going to get corrupted. I have a problem with that. Going to the Facebook operating board itself, um, I see it as a whitewash and I see it as pretty much of a sham because what it's dealing with are individual content moderation decisions. Facebook makes either its machines or its moderators around the world make literally billions of decisions a day on what to keep up and what to keep down, what to amplify, what to de-amplify. What the Facebook board deals with, and it will deal with, is perhaps 100 or so of those decisions a year. 
What it doesn't deal with and what it can't deal with, because that's where the money is, is how Facebook is itself designed. The algorithms that that magnify inflammatory content to keep us on platforms to sell us ads. And so what's really at issue with Facebook isn't an individual decision as to whether one piece of content should or shouldn't go up. Uh, it's what is Facebook doing with our private data? How is it monetizing that private data? How is it orchestrating its platform in ways that perhaps aren't socially useful? So I wrote a long article not that long ago about private arbitration boards, et cetera, and how they inevitably skew for the, for the party that's paying the bills. And I, I just see this as toothless and sort of a bright, shiny object. What would be teeth for you? And if this is toothless, you have quite a lot of ideas in the book about what's wrong with censorship. There's still a question mark over what concrete solutions to the kind of problems that unfettered uh, tech platforms and serving up uh, content, which many consider directly harmful, what that might look like. If you put on your legal hat, as well as what you might wish for philosophically, what do you think could be done to regulate social media companies and internet giants more robustly? I mean, what is within the realm of the possible here? It's very easy to snipe from the side. It's very, very difficult to actually say this is how it should be. And I actually, uh, at the risk of offending some of your listeners, I, I do believe that there is a place, a large place for offensive speech. For example, I, I have a very strong identity with Judaism. And when I hear anti-Semitic speech, it drives me crazy. But that doesn't mean that I shouldn't tolerate it. It's very hard for people to metabolize that we, that we need to tolerate wrong speech for the good of society because once you block one kind of speech, you're going to end up blocking another. What are the outer limits? Legally, I think when the platforms are used directly to create illegality. For example, there's a practice in the United States of ad targeting. Say you're building houses and you're building houses in a nice, bright, shiny suburb, and you're the developer, and you don't want those kinds of people moving into this neighborhood that, that you're building. So you target ads so they only hit white people from a certain neighborhood. That is discrimination. That is using the platform in a way to discriminate against other people. If you're using the platform to organize a riot. Even if one feels intimidated by it, it's a Jewish area of, of London that some extremists uh, drove through shouting anti-Semitic slogans recently, something that seems very regrettably on the rise here. If I go into a mainly black area and wave around Ku Klux Klanish, you know, updated Ku Klux Klanish kind of speech, some people are going to feel very intimidated by that. And they're not just going to think I don't like it, they're going to feel harmed by it. Are you riding too lightly on this question of of harm and the harm that you can do to them, to, to their minds and to their well-being? By bringing up myself personally, I wasn't trying to own the question of harm, but we all have things that make us hurt. And the existence of harm uh, is something to take very, very seriously. I, I, I just have to note that when you take a historical view, when you pass laws that sound good, they're inevitably used for the bad. Mandela was charged with divisive hate crimes. Gandhi was charged with divisive hate, hate crimes. I believe that we should have the, we should let the poor speech out if it guards the good speech. I really, really do. I think that the price 
of a free society is walking around with a stone in your shoe. It's, it's noise. It hurts. Life is messy. And by, and by turning to law to say, well, you know, we're rent with hatred, we're rent with division, and I want to pass a law to stop that. It's not like you're going to stop the anti-Semites from being anti-Semitic or the anti-Muslims from being anti-Muslim. We're trimming around the edges. And I'm not quite sure that the actual quantum of pain is going to be less. You know, Germany's had quite aggressive enforcement, and in Central Europe, of hate speech laws for quite a long time. And the amount of hate crime is going up. Now, can we say that it would be going up even more absent the, you know, we don't know. It's, it, again, chasing a vacuum. It's, it's hard to know what isn't there. But I, I am, you know, in the UK, you have this online safety bill now law, law, which is going to potentially create massive fines against the platforms unless they do what they can to prevent the potential risk of adverse psychological harm on some user, even indirectly. That's going to result in a lot of good speech getting taken down along with the bad. This month is the 70th anniversary of the UN's Refugee Convention. You yourself have represented many refugees and asylum seekers in US courts. So you claim, I think this is right, that you've never lost an asylum case. Is that true? Well, I'm not done yet. (laughs) You're not done yet. So what do you look for in the cases you take and what motivates you, you to take them? I do this, I mean, you know, it's not, not it, there's a, a version to speaking well about oneself, but I do this as sort of to give back. I've been very fortunate in a thousand ways in life. And this, and when, when these cases came to me, what do I look for? I look for the, for the, for the most heartrending cases. I mean, most of my clients are Central American women who have been, um, you don't want five minutes of their lives. Let's just put it like that. They are on the thinnest ground uh, legally. I mean, if you come to the United States and you say, you know, I'm here as a political refugee from, from Cuba or from some other place, we love it. But abused women, uh, not, not so easy. So those are the cases that I take. I think what part of the reason why they've often gone well is because most people that come to the United States uh, as refugees don't have representation at all and they go up in the immigration court and, and they stumble and the judges have very little patience for them. But when you get attorneys who work six months on the case and show up with a reasoned argument, then that almost differentiates you. So yes, there's some skill involved, but it's also sheer you know labor. But we have a refugee problem in this country that is enormous, as you do, and it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, what do you, you make of that current standoff over the southern border? It's clearly a, already a big thorn in the side of the Biden administration. He promised a more tolerant approach, but he is under pressure to do something about that swelling number of migrants at the the border. That is quite a, a dilemma. I mean, which way would you advise him? Well, given the fact that my grandparents came over to the United States at the bottom of a boat from the turn of the century and had literally nothing, I can't help but view that today's damaged refugees grandchild might be an attorney or an author or something like that. So I'm much more prone towards opening borders and taking our chances. I think that's that's what this country is really, really built on. In the meantime, yes, Biden has stumbled and has gone back on his word several times and I'm disappointed. At the same time, quietly, they're changing the law and they're undoing a lot of the worst depredations of Trump. Just recently, 
my clients were given a real boost by a, a very quiet change in the law that was done from the Biden administration, giving much greater rights to my clients. So it's a textured approach. There's international policy. There's a lot of politics involved. Biden is, I think he's doing his best, but, but his, his conduct on the border has been contradictory and, and rather mealy. And if I was a refugee trying to figure out whether I was coming into this country, I, I kind of wouldn't know what the hell to make of what he's doing. Or as vice president, by the way. You have uh, encountered a, a lot of censorship in research that you've done for your own book. And therefore, I suppose you've had at least a nodding acquaintance with some of the great works of, of literature that have encountered the censors down the years. So I think uh, we often ask uh, our guests what they'd like to take with them to their kind of desert island if they are stuck there, apart from listening to this podcast, because obviously they'll have lots of ways to get electricity on their desert island. And... You take a book. I think we're going to give you a, a book and possibly a book that has survived the censor. What would it be? Oh, my God. Um, <clears throat> think of any great book that you've read in your life. And somewhere along the line, that, that, that book has been censored. I can tell you one thing. There is a biography of Philip Roth, who is one of my favorite writers of the 20th century, which was just taken off the list by its publisher because the biographer's um, sexual misconduct or accused sexual misconduct 25 odd years ago has made him um, toxic. So I have always have a stack of books on my bookstand. I'd, I'd like to take that book, which has effectively been canceled, to me with uh, Huckleberry Finn, one of the great novels ever that was initially censored because of its anti-slavery message, is now being censored because the prodigious use of the N-word makes people uncomfortable. Even when the, the N-word is being used in the book in a way to criticize slavery. So I think we ask our, our listeners what they would take. I will take some of my beloved East German literature with me because it, it, it went through shot and shell and often got published somewhere else entirely and then re-imported into the country. So I think those books, I have them with their yellowing pages and bad printing, but they, they mean a lot. Eric Berkowitz, thank you very much indeed for joining us. I really enjoyed this. This was great. And we'd love to know what you think, having listened to our conversation. Do get in touch with me. Do you err on the side of some sympathy for the censor? Or are you an inveterate free speecher? I wouldn't mind knowing what your Desert Island book is as well. I'm so ready for a holiday. I'm going to consider it there and get back to you. Write to us at podcast@economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. A subscription to The Economist might see you through that stint on a remote island too. So why not sign up today and not just in case the worst should happen. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London... This is The Economist. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.